If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to the Gospel of Mark this morning, chapter 1, and we'll be reading as we start off shortly here from verses 12 through 20, but first a couple of comments about, about the Gospel as we consider it just briefly. Mark is a Gospel you just don't hear about a lot because it's, it's actually so short, 16 chapters, and... Um, all the other Gospels pretty much have more detail, so Mark is really more of the summary. That's why we call it the newspaper version. It's kind of the condensed version. It's very fast. But each of the Gospels present Christ in a little bit different way. Matthew, of course, was a Jew, and so he presents Christ in his Jewishness as a king coming and so forth. Luke was a Gentile physician. You see aspects of that as he presents his perspective on Christ. John presents Christ as, of course, very clearly deity, God, and makes a big emphasis on that. So we go to John a lot. We encourage people to read the Gospel of John if they've never read the, read the Bible. Read John first because it'll give you the overall picture. And then we come to Mark. Then we come to the Gospel of Mark. And um, he was really presenting Christ as one who served, who was kind of like a helper, and um, he was an obedient servant and so forth. And so he focuses on action, as I said before. Immediately, 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 that word is used over and over in the Gospel of Mark. It's very interesting for me to, to read through this Gospel from the standpoint of preaching it to you. It looks like I got the pulpit early today, so I got a lot of time to extend my sermon, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, it'd be a long sermon on a short gospel. So, <laughs> but as you remember, last time we were in here, we were in this passage here. We were we were talking about his baptism. Just a couple of verses. Christ was baptized. He didn't need to be baptized because he was he was perfect. He never sinned. There was no need for repentance. But it was a baptism of repentance, so he could identify with us. And of course, the the Spirit, like a dove, came down and rested upon him. The Holy Spirit's presence was clear in his life, and God's voice spoke from heaven. So you have the Trinity there, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all together in one place. It was a high point as all of Israel was there at the Jordan River, and um, Christ was being crowned. It was his coronation as the coming Messiah, finally is here, finally is here. It was a really a, a real high point. I just want you to remember what a high point that would be down at that river Jordan flowing, probably one of the last ones that John baptized. And now John's ministry as the one who prepared the way is basically over. There's a few things that will happen in his life, a few things that he'll continue on with, but it won't last long, and soon he will be incarcerated and his head will be chopped off. But today we're going to go a little different route. Today we are actually going to go the next verse or two, and then when we get to those verses you'll see that this goes from the high point of his baptism to the, to the terribleness of the desert wilderness it is. Now, I want to read the whole text before we get into our first point here this morning. So if you have your Bibles, let's just read through this section. And the reason I'm saying that is because we're going to talk about more than just the wilderness experience. There's three things that we see here that really are characteristic in a short kind of way about what essentials are important in ministry in general, in churches, in our lives, and so forth. There's three of them. But just follow with me from verse 12 down to verse 20. 
Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the beasts, wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then verse 16, the third little vignette here, it says, As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending nets, the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Very interesting text. I want a little story to kind of open things up before we get started here. This last week we, we met a new friend. Nancy and I were spending some time. We're out on the water actually and the lady that we met was telling me about her husband. She knew that I had been in the Coast Guard and spent some time at sea and so forth. She was telling me that her husband was a maritime mariner. He was a captain of a ship. He had gone through the Maritime Academy he really loved that kind of work, and so he became a captain eventually. He was a young man, graduated from the academy, and uh, he put in for his first job. And the first job he ended up getting was on a freighter that needed a captain, with a, had a crew on it, that would take it to Hawaii. So he, he took the job. So they shoved off, and they headed for Hawaii, and they're going across the Pacific, and somewhere in the middle of the Pacific... The ship started to sink, and everybody was panicked, and then they realized that two of the crew members were in cahoots to sink the, ships, the ship, and they were ordered by the company to do it so the company could illegally get insurance money. They tried to stop these two crew members, but the crew, these two guys had guns, so they couldn't do anything, and the ship sank out from with under them. Here they are out in the middle of a, the ocean. They had two boats. They divided the 15 crewmen in. And they had an EPIRB, which means it's sort of an electronic uh, signaling device that sends out a mayday signal to the Coast Guard so they can come and rescue you or whoever might hear it. And um, they couldn't get it to work, so they decided it needed some salt water in it. Maybe that activated it. That only ruined it, and then it wouldn't work at all. So here they are out in the middle of the ocean, and the ocean can be sometimes very placid, but sometimes very, very rough and dangerous. Well, it wasn't too, wasn't too bad. It was kind of hot, so they huddled under the tarps that they had made to keep out of the sun if they could. They had very little water, very little food, very, very little food, and they shared what little they had. And um, one day, two days, three days, four days, a week went by, they had no way to signal anyone where they were. Finally, after two weeks, in the middle of the ocean, in two boats, with two criminals in the boats with you, a Navy ship saw them 
and rescued them. Well, you know, that's very interesting because that is a kind of wilderness experience. Not too much unlike what we see with Jesus. It's just in the middle of the ocean where it's just as destitute as it is in the middle of a desert. It's a dangerous place. Wild animals are around you. Wild sharks and so forth, things like that are around you. So I think it's very interesting that that man actually became a better captain because of that. Wouldn't you? You would learn some things from a situation like that to be able to uh, apply it to your next job. So he uh, works on tugboats now and stays close to land. (laughs) I thought it was an interesting story, but we see that here with Jesus, and there are three little stories here that, that John gives us. He doesn't give us the whole scope of what happens with Christ from the time he was baptism on, but this was really the first thing, the baptism Follow, is followed immediately by, and immediately it does say that, by this time in the wilderness, verses 12 and 13, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. Here is what I think that you see is one, one thing that's really essential in anyone that's going to do ministry, anyone that wants to serve God, especially when churches are starting. I think it's, it's important that they, they, they go through the time of kind of testing. And that's what was going on with Jesus. He was going through his time of testing that was ordained from eternity past, I believe, before he would come to do his work on the cross. If you didn't think, if you thought that was a time of testing, well, this is also at the beginning of his ministry. So my first point here this morning is really one thing that's really essential here of servant ministry is staying true in the midst of temptation, staying true in the midst of trial and being proved and tried. The Lord brings those kinds of times to us, and he certainly did to Christ also. It says in verse 12 that immediately the Spirit impelled him to go to the wilderness. So keep in mind that he had come from the height of baptism down by the Jordan River, and all the people were there, the Father and the Spirit affirming who he was. John the Baptist, who had prepared the way, recognized it too. He went to the height of that experience now to the desert wilderness, the Judean wilderness. The picture I put up there is probably where it is, where it was. There's a couple of different options. One is on the Israeli side of the Jordan, the other is on the opposite side. In both cases, they're terrible places to be. Terrible place. In fact, we have gone up through that wilderness when we were vacationing there and taking a trip on through Israel. And as you drive up that road, we've done that a couple times, I've done it a couple times, it, it looks exactly like that. It is a very, very hostile place to be. But the Spirit impelled him to go there. On one side is Jerusalem up on the mountain and it's quite a ways up there and the other side is the Dead Sea, thousand feet below sea level. It's in between those two places. It says the Spirit impelled him to go there. I thought that was interesting. That word uh, has the idea of driving him and expelling him and forcing him into the wilderness. But I don't think that he was being forced against his will as the Spirit was impelling him to go there. It was sort of a teamwork kind of thing. The Spirit was with him and he was with the Spirit and the Father as well as he went to do his work. He never hesitated on what he was to do. 
This was a, a desert of loneliness and intense heat. A few times we've been through there, it's very obvious. He didn't drag his heels, he went right into it. It was a lonesome place. It was not only hot and, and lonesome, but a solitary wasteland. There's just nothing good that grows out there that you can make into dinner. And it says he was in the wilderness for 40 days. 40 days, which would be 40 nights as well. No food. The other gospel accounts give much more detail about it, but Mark only gives just these brief verses here. But we know from reading the others that there was nothing to eat out there, and there was no water, and he was really without anything for 40 days. You say, is that possible? Well, there are a couple of other accounts very similar to this in the Old Testament. If you're strong, perhaps you can make it by the, by the grace of God. If you're weak, you probably won't, but he did make it. No food. And in the midst of that, he was tempted by Satan. The word Satan means adversary, adversary. And he was with wild beasts. We like to think that what happened was while he was out there, because we know that there were three temptations that took place, and each of those temptations, Christ uh, had Satan come to him. Christ had Satan come at just the right moment, I believe. I mean, the, I think Satan saw the weakness that he had, and he, he just came to him when he saw that he was weak. The first thing that he noticed was, he coughed. of course, he was hungry, you know, and he came and he said, make the, make the stones into bread. Make the stones into bread. You can do it. I, th I think when Satan came in each of those three instances, he was appealing to Christ to remember the high point of his baptism and his coronation, and now to him to say, look, you don't deserve this. You deserve better than this. Have you ever heard people say that about difficult times people go through? You deserve better than this. We shouldn't buy into that. God may be using it. You deserve better than this. Why? You're the king. You're the, you're the Messiah. You're the coming king. Command these stones to become the best bread you've ever ate with a little bit of good old uh, butter on it, you know. And Boy, that must have sounded awfully good. I don't know about you, but I don't like missing even one meal. And food sounds really good, but imagine 40 days. And not only that, when he was tempted, he was tempted in the ultimate of each area of temptation. First John tells us that there is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. In those three areas, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and pride of life, we can see all sin of any kind, all temptation of any kind will fit into one of those three categories. And the first one was the lust of the flesh. We often think of the lust of the flesh being, well, that's got to be sex, but it's not because you can live without sex, but you cannot live without food. You cannot live without food. And Satan was tempting him there in the midst of that. Well, he came and he tempted him. And um, there are three areas. I'm not going to go to the other two necessarily. He was also tempted briefly to, here's the kingdoms of the world as he looked out across the mountain. And you could have all of them, Satan said. It wasn't really true, but... but Jesus, again, quoted scripture as he does in each case. And then the last one was when he was taken to the pinnacle of the temple and said, look, 
throw yourself off and have the angels pick you up and there'll be such a prideful experience. You know, it was pride of life was involved there. And he didn't fall prey to that either. He, he quoted scripture in each case. And that's something we should, we should clearly remember even though it doesn't mention it right here. He relied upon the truth and the word of God. Truth and the word of God. So while he was there, he was being tempted by Satan. Satan would come and he would, he would tempt him in these moments of weakness, weakness of food and so forth, and then come back a little bit later and try something else and come back a little bit later and try something else. And all the time he was doing it, it says that there, was wild, there were wild beasts there. He was with wild beasts. Now, I was reading commentators on this, and someone said, well, that means that they were there to comfort him, you know, like your pet cat or dog or something like that. I don't think that's what that means at all. These were wild beasts. Wild beasts. We read accounts of what that wilderness was like and kinds of animals that would likely be found there, scorpions, serpents, sometimes bears, wild cats that could tear you apart that were made for that area, and so on. I don't think that was a pleasurable experience. I can imagine him sitting, and probably not by a campfire at night, but in some little cave, and these critters were prowling around where he was. Sounds pretty frightening, doesn't it? He didn't have any flashlight. He didn't have any gun. He didn't have any bow and arrow. He didn't have anything like that to protect him. Just simply trusting God. Christ faced the ultimate temptation in all these areas, and Mark gives us this picture very clearly for us. And I like what 1 John 2 tells us, that he faced all these all these temptations, the lust of the flesh and all these things. But it was for our benefit. For our benefit. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, it says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That makes him the Savior that he is because he was tempted as he faced those things. It also says in 1 Peter 4, verse 12, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. We shouldn't be surprised when trials come to us. When trials come to us, which God may ordain, maybe it's a desert experience or maybe it's being in a lifeboat with a criminal for a couple of weeks in the middle of the ocean and not knowing you'll forever be found. Maybe it means being in the hospital. Or maybe it means some situation in your life, financial or emotional or moral or whatever, and it's difficult, but Christ knows how to help us in the midst of that. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. That would really describe a desert kind of wilderness situation, wouldn't it? Not something strange, it's something that Christ went through and really somebody and anybody that really has any significant role in history and so forth really goes through those kinds of things at times. Become leaders. 
people in the military go through very difficult times sometimes. And if they weather the temptations and the trials of it, they'll be the better for it. In the next verse, verse 13 of 1 Peter 4, it also says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. That's the rejoicing in trial part. Rejoicing in trial. So that also, at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. There's a here and then there's a later. There's a now and then there's an eventuality of when we can rejoice because of the trials that we've been through. Amazing. So in your Saul groups this week, if you're in one, uh, just remember the question here that God's Spirit may lead you into a time of testing and maybe you're going through it right now and I don't even know about it. But uh, ask the Lord to give you strength Come back to the word when you're tempted to, to sort of have a wrong attitude about it and trust God in the midst of it. Trusting God is really the basis of this. I want you to notice something here as we talk about this trial too. Uh, the contrast between Adam in the Old Testament creation and of course Christ. The first Adam, which is of course Adam and Eve, we will remember them in the garden, Along with his wife was tempted. We know that. Satan came to him, came as, as in the form of a serpent. And he was in a perfect surrounding. He was in absolute comfort. And he had his beautiful wife with him in the Garden of Eden. And he failed. He failed. The second Adam, of course, which is Christ, as he's called sometimes in the New Testament. The second Adam was tempted, however, in the most hostile and the most austere of situations and so forth in the desert, in the wilderness there. He was tempted. And Satan came to him repeatedly, repeatedly. And for a long period of time, 40 days, as he was tempted, in each case, to the max, to the full extent of each temptation that you could possibly be tempted in, which I haven't gone into totally there for you. And he was victorious. There's a great contrast between that. And so we are in our human bodies and we face all kinds of things and we probably tend to be like Adam, but no, we have a Lord who has gone through it and he has been victorious and he's won the victory in the midst of that. So what can we say about Christ's temptation here? It was to the max in each area. Uh, he could have made bread from stones there. He could have had all the kingdoms of earth, supposedly, and the, the pride of commanding his angels to protect him, etc. But he didn't. He didn't. And so it is with us. He's there. He's there to help us. Pastors, church leaders, parents. At your job, perhaps, those kinds of things. He's there to see you through those trials. And those trials will make you a better person in the long run. They will make you more like Christ in the long run, whatever it is. It's interesting, we should keep in mind in the midst of this as we look at his trial there, although Mark doesn't really give us much information, that, that Satan is prone to attack us and at our weakest points. He's there to attack us at our weakest points, isn't he? you've been attacked recently. Suppose you heard about our son's 
situation, ordeal, was a couple of days ago, their car suddenly burned up while they were driving and they lost everything that was in it. Fortunately, they were out safe, but God was good. God brought them, two very kind people. Someone took them to a restaurant, bought them some food, bought them dinner. Might be kind of hard to eat after a situation like that. Police were there, cars were backed up for miles. And then someone offered to take them to Portland where we would meet them and bring them home. And wouldn't even accept any money from ga for gas that we offered them. We did give them a Diru tract, however, though, and they did, they did accept it. A godly man, I believe, who was a veteran from Vietnam, Navy man, was willing to do that. God provides help in time of difficulty, doesn't he, in ways you don't expect. Well, after the temptation, Mark really omits a lot of details of what happened next in the other Gospels he gives them, but the other Gospels are not what we're studying here. And Mark really doesn't mention anything about many miracles or anything like that are more prevalent in the others. It doesn't talk about Christ going and cleansing the temple in the first time when he went to the temple. It doesn't talk about Nicodemus meet, meeting with him at night in John chapter 3 and so forth. And uh, Christ baptizing even others. Christ did some of that also. It mentions that. doesn't talk about the Samaritan woman. He doesn't talk about all kinds of things. But he now comes and now Mark emphasizes in verse 14 and 15 the preaching of the gospel. Just jumps all the way from the temptation here to the preaching of the gospel. Leaves all this other out. And, and as, as some have said, it seems that what Mark is saying to us, these are things that Christ did in his life that we should take note of that are very important for the ministry that he would have as we have a quick, immediate kind of overview of his life. So we should take note of it. So this, this part here is in verse 14 now. We already read it, but I'll read it again. Preaching the gospel of God is really what ministry is all about. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came to Galilee, it says, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe the gospel. Very simple. Very simple. Second point here. What can we say about this? Well, I'll talk just a little bit about the context here. Um, John had been imprisoned later on. He'd been in prison. We know the story. By Herod. His ministry is basically over. Jesus is going about doing ministry. We even know that he did some baptism and so forth. But when John is in prison, Jesus is down towards Judea, down towards Jerusalem. Now he moves towards Galilee to the north. So if you think of a map back here, Galilee would be up to the north and Jerusalem and Judea would be down to the south. So he goes, really, and um, after John has taken custody there and come, comes up into Galilee, about 75 miles, we, he came down that way for the baptism, now he goes back, he had to walk back, there's kind of a valley you can walk up there and sometimes they drive it when they take you there and you tour Israel and have an idea where he would go through, perhaps even Samaria there too. And he heads back up, that's why he went to Galilee to the north, it was a safer place because it was not yet time for him to go to the cross. This is early on in his ministry. It's really the beginning of his ministry, and we could say these three points are sort of a summary of what the beginning of ministry should be looked at and thought about. If you're thinking about ministry, or even in your own life, much of it applies. And it says as he came to Galilee, he was preaching the gospel there. 
preaching the gospel, and he also says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. There's different ways that the gospel is referred to here. It's kind of interesting to note there's talking about the gospel of God. You'll see that mentioned sometimes, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the kingdom, and just the gospel here. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is good news. Kingdom of God is good news. And we say the gospel refers to good news. That's basically, a, that's basically a translation of the word gospel. It means good news. Good news. Now keep in mind that Christ had not yet died on the cross, had not yet been buried and resurrected, which we know 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the gospel really is good news about those things, the death, burial, and resurrection. But that hadn't happened yet, but the gospel word is still used even before that time. And so it's alluding to what is coming in the overall kingdom, but later on by the time we get to Corinthians, now it's defined also as part of it, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It's key in all of it. So really, the gospel of God, which is really no different from the gospel of Christ, the gospel of God is the gospel of God because it's God's gospel, that's why. The gospel of Christ is Christ's gospel because he's the one that was buried and resurrected, and 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that's part very clearly of the gospel. But Jesus went and he was preaching the gospel, which would probably be just like John was doing. It was about repentance, about turning to the Lord, about seeking the coming Lord, the kingdom, and all that was yet to come. So the gospel of God, the kingdom of God, means it ultimately is God's, ultimately. John chapter 3, you'll know John 3 because that's where John 3.16 is and that's where Nicodemus is, but John makes a comment. He's speaking to Nicodemus who was the Pharisee that was a ruler who came to Jesus at night, if you remember, because he was a little bit afraid that people would see him and he has questions about eternal life and Jesus speaks to him there in the darkness what must I do to be born again kind of idea? And Jesus, of course, gives him an answer. In verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's part of the gospel idea. He can't see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Kingdom of God, there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is with us now. That's a present kind of spiritual sense present kind of attitude because we know the Spirit of God is with us even today. The kingdom of God is here in one sense. Christ was there and that was part of it. But there is also a literal future, future reality of the kingdom that the scriptures speak about also. When the Messiah will rule and reign and there's a thousand year millennium and then there's the eternal state after that which is really the fullness of all the kingdom after that. So Nicodemus was trying to understand these things and, and Jesus was presenting it to him. In Romans 15, verse 19, it says, this would be Paul writing here, he says, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. I fully preached the gospel of Christ. And I think that's just what it means here. Of course, this is after the death, burial, and the resurrection. It's after all of that. And he has ascended to heaven, and, and then Paul gets called by the Lord himself, we know, on his way to Damascus. And the result is he goes out and he preaches everywhere, and he is mainly the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle to the Gentiles. 
Well, Peter is to the Jews here. So uh, I really think that Paul uses this phrase often in other places and in Corinthians and also in Galatians and it was referred to as the greater picture of all that's taking place here. The gospel of Christ who made it ultimately clear he is the Messiah that was coming. And it says that time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now don't get lost too much in the words here and in the, in the grammar and all of that because it's easy to do that. But keep in mind that what he is saying, important thing here is that, is that yes, you go through testing to prepare you for whatever God has for you, but then whatever happens, you give the gospel out. You give the gospel out. If you're going to be in the ministry, if you're going to be a missionary, if you're going to be a pastor, if you're going to be a Sunday school teacher, if you're just the man on the street, you give the gospel out. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. And of course, repentance is part of that. Repentance was a change of mind and a change of direction because of your sinfulness and it deals with your sin. Repentance a change of mind about your sin, seeing it as God sees it now. That's a noel. talks about your mind. Greek word there. It's not, repentance does not describe something that we must do before we come to God, not something we do before we come to God. But one writer said, it really describes what coming to God is like. It is sort of all that is involved in coming to God. It all sort of fits together. Coming to God is repentance. In Christ's day, as it is today, most people wanted to see some kind of kingdom, political kingdom. They wanted something that would really fix their problems, you know. They really wanted that badly. But we must repent. That's what's most important. And believe, repent and believe, it says here. Clearly part of the gospel is believing as well, putting faith in the Messiah, the coming Lord. In the Old Testament, they didn't know exactly who the Messiah would be, but by, by faith, they put faith, they put their faith in whoever that was as they believed. And yet, of course, that would come to be clear that was Christ. They were saved in the Old Testament the same way we were saved in the New Testament. They were saved in the Old Testament by looking forward to the Messiah, even though they didn't have all of the details. And we are saved by looking back to what he did for us. Same Lord, same kind of faith. Believe, it says, in the gospel, once again. Must be believed. Today, people see Christ, I believe here, and preaching kind of differently, they often say, well, you just must believe. You must believe in yourself. That's one big one, isn't it? Believe in yourself. Very self-focused, very self-focused kind of thing. But it doesn't say anything about repentance in that kind of, a, kind of a gospel. I was thinking about different kinds of gospels that we could really kind of nail down that are out there and, and understand that when people say preach the gospel, they don't always mean the same thing as what the Bible means. And that's, that's kind of tricky sometimes. In, in ministry, it teaches that, that other types of gospels are out there, and we have to be careful about it. For example, there was in the first century, there was what there was called the Gnostic gospel. It was actually called the Gnostic gospel. Kind of a secret knowledge that you could attain to that no one else would know. And so 
that would somehow get you closer to nirvana or whatever it was. And uh, flesh was bad, and uh, the spirit was good, so they abused their flesh and morally and all kinds of other ways. That's the Gnostic Gospel from 40 to about 140 A.D. It's still out there in various ways. We see it today in some Eastern kinds of religions where we have a similar idea, but it's elements of the same thing, the Gnostic Gospel. There's also the Gospel of Grace, plus circumcision. That was one we talked about in the book of Galatians. That was the big theme of the book of Galatians. <coughs> the book of... Stand by. <laughs> Water. <clears throat> It'll go away in a second. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> it was the idea of the gospel plus circumcision. And it was the Judaizers who came up and were teaching that. And of course, uh, <clears throat> we see Paul opposing that in the book of Galatians there. And then, of course, in the Middle Ages, it had developed quite clearly into a gospel of faith plus works, which is really another kind of thing similar to the Galatians situation. That's why Martin Luther loved the book of Galatians, because it spoke to what was happening with the Catholic Church. And, 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 and buying all kinds of little things that would sort of give you grace. And so it was, it was faith plus some kind of grace, some kind of merit, some kind of giving, some kind of money that was given to the church and so on. And that was what caused the Reformation. <clears throat> Luther was key in dealing with that. And then today, of course, we have the health wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel as it's called. Uh, that says that if you're right with God, God's going to make you wealthy, he's going to make you rich, and he's going to make you healthy. But unfortunately, everybody that has ever embraced that will still die, and many of them already have, and they're not wealthy either. So we have to be careful about that. That's a gospel that's out there today. The gospel of love only, I just think that Jesus is love, so I just want to talk about love only, but there's no mention of repentance, there's no mention of eternal torment for sins committed that are never dealt with. That's, that's where some actually conservative theologies have gone eventually over the centuries in our country, and the result was liberal theology that turns away from the real idea of the gospel of repentance. And then there's the other gospel that's called another gospel that's um, actually mentioned in Galatians also, another gospel, and that's actually what the LDS Church calls their gospel, another gospel. And it is a different one. It's not the same as the one in the New Testament. Why so many gospels? People say, why can't the churches all get together? It's because they add all kinds of things to the scripture. They add Books, other books, other teachings, other writings, their own, of their own um, manufacturing sometimes. So you have that, especially so with, with LDS people who say, well, there's a new gospel that's been found and it's better than the old one and so we should follow that. And would you just read a copy of the Book of Mormon and see if you don't feel a, a burning in your bosom? Um, an emotional feeling is the idea. That's another gospel. That's not a New Testament gospel at all. It's based on emotions. It's always interesting to talk to these young fellows 
and asked them, do you know where the gospel is actually found in the New Testament? And I did not too long ago, and they could not tell me where it was. 1 Corinthians 15, they didn't know where to find it. And when I asked them to define it, define it as you understand it, it wasn't anything like that. It was a good challenge for them. Well, can you accurately explain the gospel? If, if there's anything that I'm going to have to answer to the God for is, is my flock, can they explain the gospel? I hope you can. 1 Corinthians 15, read it this week. Especially the first nine verses or so. It's very clearly there. And then proclaim that gospel. There's many different ways to proclaim it. It's not just the same message over and over and over and over with, with no variation. It's, there's thousands of ways you can present it. And by the way, pray for Franklin Graham as he presents it this week, coming weekend. Pray for him as he does, because it will be difficult. It's not going to be easy, because our culture is getting less and less interested in it, and more and more hostile to it. But there are still many people who realize the importance of it, and there's still many churches that do proclaim it. So pray for it, if you will, the gospel. Preach the gospel. So, three essentials. Testing, going through testing and being prepared for what comes ahead in your life, in your ministry. Preaching the gospel, that's an essential that ought to be in all of our lives in one way or another. Even if you're not a pastor, you can proclaim the gospel to others. And then thirdly and lastly, having a faithful team to lead you. And that's what you come to in verses 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. And I think it's kind of obvious because, again, there's other things that are going on. All of a sudden, Mark jumps over to the selection of the, of the 12 apostles here. I love this. I love the book called The Training of the Twelve, where uh, Jesus uh, called them, and then you see him spending time with them throughout his ministry. And here we find the training and the selection of the first four people in the training of the 12, we might say. This faithful team. Teamwork is important in ministry. It's not a one-man show. So Jesus was going along the Sea of Galilee. He was up in Galilee now. He'd gone actually to Nazareth, which was his hometown, where he kind of grew up, where he was a carpenter. And while he was in Nazareth, uh, as he had come back, from his baptism, uh, he had the opportunity to preach in the synagogue, and while he was in the synagogue, people didn't like what he was saying, and so they drove him out. They took him to the edge of the cliff because Nazareth is up on a hilltop, and if you get to the edge on one side, there's a cliff, and they can throw you off, and they took us there to show us where that likely was, and that's where he went. They were going to throw him off the cliff because they did not like his message. And instead he turned around and walked right through between them and they couldn't do a thing. It was almost like they were incapacitated because it was not his time. He left Nazareth. He left Nazareth and now he goes down to the Sea of Galilee. I think about 15, 20 miles. He goes to the northern part of the sea where there's a little village called Capernaum there. And here he sees Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. He arrives here, and his time is now to select his leaders, the 12 apostles. Capernaum is a village that they'll take you to if you go there. It's where they believe that Peter actually lived, because they found a house that had some fish hooks between the stones. And... Um, it's very likely this was the exact spot. but So he comes here to Capernaum. It was a 
thriving fishing village. A little history about's interesting, interesting there. And uh, it was a big business. Fishing was a big business. It's, it's Sea of Galilee is a little body of water about seven miles across and about um, 14 miles long. And it's calm most of the time, except when there's a big storm comes down. It's nestled between some really mountains and cliffs. It's 600 and uh, about 650 feet below sea level, Capernaum is. That's not how deep the lake is. That's, that's where it is, where this little village is. And there are many villages around that area. It wasn't just one. It was a busy place. It was a fishing town for sure. And if you don't believe it, the one of the town's names was Bethsaida, which means house of fish. How would you like that for Gig Harbor's name? House of Fish. Josephus, who was a governor in Galilee in that period of history, had once counted and recorded the number of fishing boats that sailed small Galilee, and it was around 330 fishing vessels he found. So it was a busy place, and everybody was fishing, and it was really a big thing there. And uh, business was big. Um, if you could catch fish, then you could sell them, and the fish were salted then because they didn't have a means of refrigerating them, and then they would ship them off as far away as Rome. And if you go there today, you can eat Sea of Galilee fish. Not too bad, actually, not too bad. With chips, also. They don't grow the potatoes there, I don't think, but anyway, <laughs> the fish certainly are. <laughs> and it says he was casting nets. He, there comes... Jesus walking along the edge of the seacoast here. There's boats out there, but some people are in the boat, some are out, some are near the shore, some are farther away. And he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, Simon, and Andrew was his brother. Simon was Peter, of course, so he's referring to Peter when he talks about Simon, Simon Peter. And they were casting nets, and Peter was casting the net. His brother there was helping them. For they were fishermen. That makes it real clear what they were. They were fishermen. The kind of nets they have was kind of interesting too because the net that they had, there's two types of nets. One is kind of like a seine that you pull vertically in the water behind a boat and then you catch the fish in it and then you close it up and then you can pull it up into the boat. But this was not a seine kind of net, which we still use today. This type of net here was more like a... a a lariat that a cowboy uses and he spins it and makes a big round circle and this round circle of line that they would have rope would be weighted and it had the net stretched in between and it wasn't as big as the saner type of net. It was a net that one man could grab the two ends and since it was weighted he could spin it in a certain way and it would go spinning out into the water and then it would drop, had the net all between there, between the ropes and the weights, and it would drop into the water, and then it would sink down into the water. As it went into the water, then it would catch the fish that were under it, and they would be caught, and there was another rope they had hooked to the bottom, and they would pull on that, and that would kind of bring it together somehow, so they would make like a big bag or purse, and they would pull it up. And that's what Peter and Andrew were doing there when Jesus showed up. Can you see them there? Probably kind of hot, sweaty maybe. Can get pretty warm down there. Nice day maybe. They're fishing away. And Jesus is walking down the beach. They had a boat there. And um, 
And in some cases, I think they could even do it just from the shore if they waded out their ways. Lots of fish in the sea. It must have been a very um, productive kind of place. And there they are. And it says, Jesus said to them, follow me. I will make you become fishers of men. They knew what it meant to be a fisherman, but what did it mean to be a fisher of men? And um, it's actually very likely that Peter had some understanding of that. It's very likely that he had actually been to the Jordan where John was baptizing. There's evidence of that. If you look at the cross-references, you'll find it. And he was there, and John was baptizing and so forth. And then when John went off the prison, then left and so forth, then Peter came up back to Galilee from Judea like Jesus did. So he's now back in Judea. And it's very possible he knew who Jesus was, very likely as well. So this is not the first time that he really sees Jesus, even though Mark doesn't give us much detail on that. He just said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. I think it's very possible that he was there and saw the coronation of Jesus. Wouldn't that be exciting? Wouldn't that be something to see that? So amazing. And uh, Jesus walks up. Evidently, they must have recognized him. He says, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. They knew what fishing meant and they understood something about fishing for men too. And, and notice verse 18, the next word is what? Immediately. Once again, here is this word immediately. Over and over we see it here. Immediately here, the second use of it here in this gospel, of which there are 40 uses of it. Mark likes to use that. They left their nets and they followed him. You know, I don't know about you, um, I only know about my own story and my own salvation. I think the Holy Spirit has to work absolutely in us. And the Lord calls us to himself just like he called them here. Follow me, he said. And this was probably more of a calling into ministry because I assumed that maybe Peter had already come to a place of really being born again prior to that. But anyway, this is uh, in this word, immediately they followed him, seems to indicate that they were ready and they just didn't question anything and they just got up and they left and they followed him. Are you willing or have you been willing to follow him when you first realize who he was and his gospel? that by putting your faith and believing in Christ as your Savior, that you can have your sins forgiven as a matter of your repentance, your turning from sin to Christ to follow Him, and that it's just that simple. You follow Him from then on. Immediately they followed Him. It's clear cut. It's not an osmosis kind of thing, which I heard one person describe his salvation. It was like osmosis. It just slowly, slowly crept into my mind. That's how I became a Christian. It ought to be clearer than that. If you come from a more difficult, more sinful background, obviously it's going to be clearer from that standpoint. But nevertheless, you go from death to life. You go from lost to found. You go from being away from God to being with the Lord. So immediately, it says, they, they left their nets and they followed him, it says there. Verse 19, going on a little farther now, no, no more about Peter and Andrew. There's two brothers there. 
Going on a little farther, verse 19 says that he saw James, the son of Zebedee, too. So his dad is there in this case. That's Zebedee. And John, his brother. So these are brothers also. So James and John, who were also in the boat mending nets. If you weren't fishing, you were mending nets. And if you weren't mending nets, you were fishing, you know, kind of deal. And um, fishing will kind of wear your nets out. So they were busy mending the nets. And verse 20, what does it say? Immediately. Third use of it. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee. He called them. Isn't it interesting? The Bible tells us that God calls us. We don't call him because we're dead in our trespasses and sin. Dead people can't respond to anything. It's the Lord that calls us. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went to follow him. Imagine, here's a fishing business, probably a lucrative one because the father is in the boat too. And um, we have this idea, they're working away, they're preparing their nets, they're going to do some fishing and who knows how many boats they had, but all of a sudden, if it was a family business, but all of a sudden Jesus comes along and he says, follow me. And the guys say, okay, see you later, dad. And off they went. They would never really be part of that again, essentially, as a business. Pretty shocking, isn't it? I remember when I um, told my father that I was going to join the military and that I liked it later on, but later on that I was going to go into ministry because he thought I was going to come back to the farm. He thought I was going to come back to the farm, which was actually a good deal. Not a problem with it. It was a good life um, being out there in the farm. It's a little bit like the desert, actually, in that part of the world, in eastern Washington. But, but I knew God's call was upon me, and I... I had to go, had to go, had to prepare. Immediately he called him and they left. Zebedee was there. Zebedee wasn't left alone. He had servants there and it wasn't like they were abandoning him. It wasn't his calling. This is their call to be apostles here, of course. And they went. So why did Jesus choose fishermen? He chose all kinds of people. But in this case, these guys are the are the first four of the apostles. In the other lists of the apostles, they always appear at the top. They're always the first four that are mentioned. And in that first four group, it's always Peter that's the first one mentioned in every list of the apostles in the scripture. So Lord had a particular plan here as the scripture was given to us to understand that these were the first guys. They're going to be the leaders. They're going to be the team leaders, if you will. So when you look at the list of the apostles, there's the first four, then there's another group of four, and then there's a last group of four. And the last guy in the last group is always the same guy, and do you know who that is? Judas. Judas. Interesting. Now we're not going there right now, but this is where we are here. Immediately he called them, and they were fishermen. I think fishermen are good guys, you know? Um, I spent two years on a fisheries patrol up on the Bering Sea with Coast Guard, of course, and and the fishermen that we ran into were tough guys, you know. They were strong guys. They were not afraid of hard work. They were not afraid of getting wet. And that's the way these guys were. They were, they were there. They did that work. They could face it. They cleaned fish, which is a smelly job sometimes. And it was, these were hard-working kinds of men. I think that's basically what we're seeing here. And they became the lead group in the Apostles. Every ministry that's going, to succeed, that's going to succeed is not going to do it on a one-man one program. It's not going to be one man who is the voice. It's not going to be one man who is 
who is doing all the work. It is a teamwork, a teamwork for sure. And these guys are the one. That's why in the New Testament it talks about the leaders of the church. The primary leaders of the church are elders. These are pastors. Another word for them is pastors, only used actually once in the New Testament. Elders used many times. Bishop is another term used to refer to the same office. But the elders, it's always in the plural, indicating it was a kind of teamwork that God ordained for leading the church. A kind of teamwork. Never a one-man show. It's always dangerous if it's a one-man show. But it's born on the shoulders of many people who are willing. And it's not just the elders, but I think teamwork in other areas that are not necessarily the elders of the church or the deacons as well, but many others. Keep in mind that the Lord calls us into all kinds of things. He calls us into salvation. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have called you by your name, and I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. That's in Isaiah, I think referring to Israel there. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim, proclaim what, the gospel? The excellencies of him, that's part of the gospel, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Marvelous light. Apostles were called into salvation. They were called into ministry. What about you? What about you this morning? Well, just think about these things. Discuss them tonight. Staying true in the middle of temptation so that God might use you. We can't do it perfectly like Jesus did, but we have a Lord who went through it, who can strengthen us in the midst of it. Being tested in the desert of trials is something that you're likely to go through and probably already have. Don't shun it. Number two, preaching the gospel. Sharing the gospel. Men, women, children with other people as well as those who are called into special ministry to pre preach and proclaim it as well. And then thirdly, selecting and having a team and being part of a team and not being on your own and not going out and just doing it by yourself. But that's what a church is. A church is a team. Team. And that's why Hebrews 10 tells us... Um, 12 tells us that we ought to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together because we encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're going to pray and uh, as we do, we think of the Graham event, the Graham Crusade event coming up, the rally. We need to be part of that team. We need to be praying about the gospel going forward and, and maybe the Lord spoke to your heart. So after the service, I'll be here, Paul will be here if you have questions about your salvation, questions about taking either the step of baptism or being part in some other way of our church or just questions in general or want us to pray with you, let us know. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your grace. We do thank you for your kindness. We do thank you for the gospel. We do thank you for the testing Christ went through for us and um, that he might be a worthy Savior. We do thank you, Lord, for all that we face. We thank you, Lord, for the teamwork we have in our church, which is so wonderful as we, as we face sometimes difficult times and really exciting times like we have right now coming up just down the road with our, with our building project, Lord. And 
the opportunity we all have to preach the eternal gospel. Gospel of God, gospel of Christ, gospel of the kingdom, whatever you want to call it. Thank you, Lord, for that opportunity. We have good news in spite of the bad news that surround us in the world. Bless it. Bless each one here this morning, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.